Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. Liquidchurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. Well, Merry Christmas, everybody. It's a special treat to be with you on this uh, special Christmas morning. If you're like me, Christmas itself has always been kind of linked to warm feelings and cozy thoughts. Probably my earliest memories actually trace back to last night, Christmas Eve. Uh, See, my family always spent Christmas Eve together in the living room of my parents' house where when we were little. And I can remember the sights and the smells of that special night very vividly. See, my mom would actually spend the day, you know, just kind of cleaning and cooking. How many of you did that? And around 6 o'clock, we'd turn off all the lights in our house and put on the candles. We'd, we'd light up the Christmas tree in the living room and it'd cast this, like, soft kind of warm glow. And she'd play some Christmas carols uh, softly, you know, in the background, put on some, like, potpourri. And my mom would, she'd put snacks all over the place, lots of food in the living room. My dad would bring out a book and, and lay on the couch and read or he'd fiddle on the piano. And my brother and I would kind of just wrestle on the carpet. Just sprawl out, you know, just kind of relaxing the warm flicker of the candles as the wind would whip and howl outside. A warm family time. And I remember spending a lot of time on my belly, (laughs) playing underneath that Christmas tree in those early days. See, we had this little miniature nativity scene at the foot of our Christmas tree. And it had this little rustic stable uh, made out of uh, balsa wood and moss. And inside it had these little figurines of the major players involved in Christmas, right? A couple of cows... Some sheep covered in velvet, pasted on wool. It also had this little family inside, right? Joseph in a tunic with his staff. Mary with a soft, glowing face. And then, the baby Jesus. Eyes closed, palms out. In that wonderful pose. And and the little baby Jesus just fits snugly into this little manger in the middle of the barn. Just the cutest little nativity you've ever seen. You can move the shepherds, about three inches tall, and the wise men like action figures. And play with them. And I'd literally spend hours on my belly under the tree as a boy, fooling around with the fuzzy camels and people in the candlelight under the tree. For me, the overriding feeling of Christmas, the images of Christ's birth, are pretty pastoral, (laughs) warm and safe, the feeling peaceful and relaxed. Even the music my mom played on our family record player contributed greatly to the warm, quiet atmosphere. Silent night, holy night, all is calm. All is bright. The lyrics to Away in a Manger provide like a perfect soundtrack to the hush surrounding Christ's birth, right? The cattle may be lowing and the baby awakes, but the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. That's just how babies are, aren't they? (laughs) And so I remember Christmas Eve as a warm, peaceful time. After playing with the nativity under the tree, drinking some cider, my brother and I would be spirited off to bed to await the morning excitement. But it's funny, as I got older, I became actually less and less satisfied playing under the tree with that quiet, peaceful nativity. As an adolescent, uh, my heart began to yearn for a little bit more drama than Silent Night seemed to offer. And that was right about the time, I was probably eight or nine, that I really got into the action figures and toys that dominated my childhood universe, Star Wars, right? The story of Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader began capturing my imagination. I'd be looking at these wise men and shepherds, and I was like, they don't have lightsabers. So there, right underneath my family Christmas tree, began a slow transition when I was about nine on Christmas, from the peace of the nativity, actually, to the fierce battle between the evil empire and the rebel forces. 
And that transition began innocently enough. My parents set up that nativity that Christmas, but I began hijacking it as a setting for my Star Wars battles. The perfect venue for all the little action figures and cosmic warriors I've been collecting. My first move was to take Joseph and Mary, and I replaced them with a cooler and much more dangerous couple, Luke and Princess Leia. Right in their place. It fit perfectly to scale three inches, the stable scene. The wise men, right, who were gathered just inside the stable were discarded for the likes of R2-D2 and Chewbacca. And in the stable stalls, I I hid them with their laser guns. And this tiny tiny stable where Christ was born became a hideout for these rebel forces. And the wise men became enemies, stormtroopers. I even took the camels and replaced them with these scaly, dragon-like creatures called dewbacks that they wore. They rode. And then, and then, and this this is the ultimate sacrilege of our family's nativity. Uh, I took the little sleeping baby Jesus out of his tiny manger. And replaced him with a, a Jawa. Do you, do you remember the, the Jawa? Do you remember what, they, what those are? Yeah. Little guys from the desert. I know. You're like, oh, kick this guy out. Uh, all my Star Wars action figures fit perfectly in this tiny little stable barn. And literally morphed from this bucolic setting to a bloody battleground. Where the dark forces of Darth Vader versus the Heroes of Rebellion. I'd play for hours. And hours. It's funny, as I think about how and why I replaced the warm, peaceful trappings of that early nativity with the Star Wars universe, I realized that on Christmas Day, I wanted to believe that there was a drama in the stars unfolding, that there was an epic battle between good and evil taking place, and that the fate of the universe was up for grabs and about to be decided in a war to end all wars. You know, the peaceful star of Bethlehem glowing over the scene was pretty and all, but I was like, I was enchanted by the Death Star, (laughs) I, the earthly scene on the ground was okay, camels, shepherds, there. But I love filling the skies with X-wing fighters and drones and lasers. It was like there was something imprinted on my boyhood heart that sensed intuitively. When Jesus arrived on earth that chilly night 2,000 years ago, there had to be something more going on. There had to be more at stake because this is a central event of human history, right? Christian or not, our, our calendars are divided by it. Our faith revolves around it. Was there more going on that first Christmas than met the eye looking at the scene from our earthbound perspective? Well, I didn't know, so I filled the skies with my own war of the cosmos. But it was only a few years ago that I discovered my boyhood imaginings actually were much closer to reality than I could ever have imagined. I will never forget when I first read Revelation chapter 12 for the first time. Are you familiar with it? See, typically on Christmas, we go to the gospel accounts in Matthew or Luke to look at the events surrounding Jesus' birth. And that's where we learn how the Virgin Mary was visited by an angel, told that she was bearing the actual Son of God in her womb. We find out how she and Joseph traveled those dusty roads to Bethlehem, were shut out of this crowded inn and kind of scuttled to, of all places, the stables. Where amidst the braying of barnyard animals and the mud of the stalls, the baby Jesus came crying and kicking into our world. A miraculous, improbable event. God with us. A savior to rescue man from his sins. And that in itself is an incredible account. I mean, it's fantastic in its irony, right? The son of the creator of the universe born into a feeding trough in a stable. Quite a welcome for a king. But maybe you're too familiar with the details. See, sometimes through annual repetition of the account, through the familiar images of plastic nativity scenes on lawns and cheerful, you know, peaceful lyrics, something's been lost. The night has grown cold. The scene has grown silent. 
a little bit cliche. Well, this morning, I'd like to take a look at Christmas, the birth of Jesus Christ, from the perspective of God himself. Because the birth of Jesus described in Matthew and Luke provides a ground-level account, what we see from an earthly perspective. It describes a scene that you would have witnessed that day had you been on ground level. But in Revelation 12, we get a peek behind the curtain and get a look at Christmas from God's vantage point, from the perspective of heaven rather than viewed from the earth. And yeah, what happened that first Christmas 2,000 years ago may have been bright and calm and peaceful on earth. But in the heavens... Behind the stars, it was anything but calm and peaceful. See, in heaven, Scripture tells us, a cosmic drama, a war to end all wars, and an epic battle more befitting a scene from Star Wars was unfolding. Let's take a look at this passage from Revelation 12 together. You can follow along in your Bible. We'll also have the main excerpts up on the screen. Revelation, as many of you know, is the last book of the Bible. It's written by the Apostle John at the end of his life. And as some of you know, it's considered apocalyptic literature. And that simply means it's full of these incredible kind of fantastic symbols and descriptions of the end times. But in this chapter, the Apostle John pulls back the curtain of the skies for us to give us a glimpse of what was happening in the heavens when Jesus was born on earth 2,000 years ago. This is the other account of the first Christmas, the birth of Christ into our world. This is Revelation 12. I'll start with verse 1. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Let's skip to verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Verse 17 sums it up. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war. Against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Well, bet you've never seen that version printed on a Hallmark card before, right? I told you, it is an extraordinary scene, very different than the peaceful, quiet, earthbound perspective highlighted in the Gospels and in most carols. See, on earth, Yeah, uh, the cattle may be lowing and all is calm and bright, but in the invisible spiritual realm, we're told, a bloody war is taking place in the heavens. Revelation pulls back the curtain of the skies to reveal an invisible struggle between God and his legions of angels intent on delivering a savior to our world and Satan and his demonic forces intent on thwarting the delivery of that child at all costs. 
Start with verse 1, right? John sees this woman ready to give birth. And the Hebrew readers of this, as well as the early Christians, understood that this was a powerful symbol. Packed with tremendous meaning. I don't want to get into the numerology of it all, but they, they would have understood the crown of 12 stars that she was wearing symbolized the 12 tribes of Israel. And so this woman is a representation of Mary, the virgin daughter of Israel, who's chosen by God to bear his son, Jesus. And verse 2 tells us she is at the moment of delivery. She is in pain, on the verge of giving birth. But then in verse 3, another sign appears in the heavens, only this one is a little bit more sinister. A dragon with ten horns, which in Hebrew literature of of this sort represents great satanic power. Although we usually think of ten as as a perfect number, in Revelation the number ten is actually used exclusively regarding the enemies of God. This is the kind of stuff you want to be aware of if you ever take a peek into Revelation. But the dragon is quite obviously Satan, who in verse 4 stands in front of the woman poised. As she's about to deliver, so that what? He might devour her child the moment he's born. Now, on earth, the gospel writer Matthew tells us that the ancient king known as Herod the Great was so threatened by the possible arrival of a rival king of the Jews that he did what? Do you remember? Yeah. Hearing of Jesus' birth, he actually issued an edict demanding the wholesale slaughter of all boys under two years of age. In an obsessive attempt to kill Jesus. And the dragon stood in front of the woman so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. So we learn that on earth, King Herod's desire to kill the newborn child, whom he saw as a threat to his earthly throne, was motivated by a heavenly scene, Satan, who wanted to demolish the world's savior and snuff him out. In other words, There are two opposing signs in the skies above the nativity that night. Mary in anguish preparing to bring forth life. And Satan in fury attempting to bring death. Verse 5 tells us that the dragon lunges at the Christ child, but it's actually too late. She gave birth to a son, a male child, which is John's way of telling us that this child is Jesus, the one whom the prophet Isaiah prophesied would one day rule all nations with an iron scepter. And so the little boy is born under the protection of his heavenly father and arrives safely to his destination. And then this amazing line, around which John Milton built an imaginary universe. Verse 7, and there was war in heaven. The heavenly forces are led by the archangel Michael. He's actually only one of two angels ever named directly in the Bible. The other was, anyone know? Gabriel, who's been busy this whole time too. Where was he? He's the angel who delivers the news about Jesus' birth to Mary in Luke 1. So you've got cosmic messengers and warriors, Michael's the fiercest of them all, at work all throughout this history-changing event. And Michael and the angelic armies in this fierce cosmic conflict clash with these satanic forces and finally defeat them in verses 8 and 9. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Whoa! Silent night, all is calm. On earth, that may have been true, but in heaven, it's a different story. One hears the steel of swords clashing, the screams of warriors dying, the smoke and bloodshed of intense spiritual warfare going on. Yes, this is epic battle between the forces of good and evil, and yes, the future of the universe does hang in the balance. 
And suddenly we're reminded again that the truest reality of the world around us, of our lives, is that as children of God, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, what we can see in the visible world, but against the rulers and authorities and the powers of this world's darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Your future, my future, hanging in the balance on Christmas. The threat of a life doomed to enslavement and death or the hope of a life ransomed and free. And all of this, get it, pinned on the back of a tiny, helpless, infant child. Fantastic? Yes. Supernatural stakes. A battle over a baby, the Christ child. Why? What what was so important about this this child? Why, Why did the future of the universe hinge on his safe delivery to earth? Well, probably the best clue can be found in Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. That gospel narrative describes the original angelic message given to Joseph by the Lord. And he gives us two names that the baby would be known by. And those two names actually tell us all we need to know to understand the full meaning of this cosmic drama. Read with me. Matthew writes, An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child. And she will give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel. Which means God with us. This is the identity of the Christ child born on earth that day. And believe me, Satan and his evil forces understood exactly what those names signify. As verse 21 tells us, Mary's baby would be called Jesus. Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua, which in Hebrew is Yeshua, which translated means, anyone? The Lord saves. And if Jesus is sent by God to save, it obviously implies that someone, somewhere, is in need of rescue. (laughs) Verse 23 instructs that he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. As any expecting parent will tell you, picking out a baby's name can be an excruciating process. So much is loaded into that firstborn's name. It needs to have just the right meaning to capture the essence of that child and in some cases describe the hope and purpose of that child's life. My youngest daughter is named Chase in the hopes that one day she will be a God chaser, someone who pursues her heavenly father. My youngest son, Del, is named after my own earthly father. It's our aspiration that our youngest boy will grow into the kind of gentle, compassionate, and faithful man that his grandfather was. Well, the name Jesus was not selected, actually, by Joseph, who was Jesus' earthly stepfather. They are bestowed by the baby's heavenly father. And it is his right to name this child because he is the one who impregnates Mary miraculously through his Holy Spirit. And he gives the child these names, Jesus and Emmanuel. And what's significant is that these two names capture the identity of the Christ child. They are the message from God his Father to the entire universe about who his son is and what he has come to do. Look at them. The name Jesus specifies what he does, right? God saves. He is here to save. While the name Emmanuel specifies who he is. God with us. In the form of a human child, God moved into the neighborhood, came to dwell with us. It's called the incarnation. 
Those of you who took Spanish, what does carne mean? Meat, right? Chili con carne. Meat, in carne, in the flesh, in the meat. God with meat or with skin. God in the flesh. And one can imagine the alarm with which the devil and his legions heard those names uttered. God saves what? But we have humanity pinned down. As verse 17 of Revelation describes, the dragon missed destroying God's son at the incarnation, but settled for going off to war against the rest of the woman's offspring. Those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus, uh, newsflash folks, that's you and me. The dragon missed his original target on that first Christmas, but now we're the ones in his crosshairs. We're the ones that the devil is out to devour. And the enemy has been having his way with us ever since. Responsible for the disease, the decay, and death that grip our fallen world. He's to blame for the sins that bind us and keep our day-to-day lives enslaved. Anger, jealousy, greed, lust, hardness of heart, and pride that keeps us alienated from love, running from God, distrustful of others. This is, Scripture tells us he's responsible for blinding every human being and enslaving each of us in a lonely prison of the self (laughs) from which there appears no escape. This is where you and I live day to day. I know it appears that we're just like living, you know, ordinary suburban lives in New Jersey, going our jobs, doing shopping, whatever. But the reality is, Scripture confronts us with the reality that from a heavenly perspective, we are on the front lines of a fierce spiritual war that is to blame for most of the wounded and hurting people you see around you. There are two parallel worlds, folks. The one you can see and the invisible one that is the truest reality. Yes, we are a people in need of a rescue. But here's where the drama gets good. Because just when the dragon and his forces were having their way on earth with each man, woman, and child born into captivity and assault, our creator speaks, Jesus, I will save them. What? what? There's, there's a rescue plan? But how, but how? Emmanuel, I will go to be with them. What? 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 Revelation tells us the name Satan actually means accuser, and you can almost hear the accuser taunting God in his throne room like an outraged prosecuting attorney. Why, why, why would you do that? Why would you go to them? They run from you. Look at them. Insolent, blind, weak, sinful, rebellious, because I love them. They are my children. And because they are unable to come to me, I will go to them. Emmanuel, I will be with them. And with that decision, the king of heaven sounded the trumpet, the alarm of a counter-assault, of a daring rescue mission to save me, the likes of me, Tim Lucas, and you, the children he created and desperately longs to reclaim as his own, his mission to save us from our sins, from spiritual death and destruction authored by the devil, to save us from our prison, from separation from himself, and bring us into life, into freedom, and to fill our hearts with love for him and the rest of our brothers and sisters. If this earth indeed is Satan's new domain, as the Bible describes, it means that the incarnation, 
the birth of Jesus that we are celebrating this Christmas is nothing less than the moment of God's most vicious counterattack on the enemy of our souls. Christian author Philip Yancey writes, In daily life, two parallel histories occur simultaneously, one on earth and one in heaven. Revelation, however, views them together, allowing a quick look behind the scenes at the cosmic impact of what happens on earth. On earth, a baby was born, a king got wind of it, and a chase ensued. In heaven, the great invasion had begun. A daring raid by the ruler of the forces of good into the universe's seat of evil. I love that. What we are actually celebrating this morning is D-Day. <laughs> the great invasion. A daring raid by the ruler of the forces of good into the universe's seat of evil. Merry Christmas. <laughs> God's, God's plan was as improbable as it was risky, as you know. I mean, to infiltrate this world, he planted the seed of Jesus in the womb of an unmarried teenage girl who lived in a dusty backwater province of Israel. It was he who accompanied her and Joseph along the road to Bethlehem that frigid night, under the cloak of darkness. <clears throat> As the satanic forces almost certainly scoured the land, bent on the destruction of that child. Do not let him live, snorted the dragon. On earth, all we could see was an insecure, ego-driven King Herod making a few political arrangements. But behind the stars... We see the very seat of evil being shaken to its core. Again, the Bible contrasts the realities of the earthly and heavenly realms. On Christmas Eve in the heavenly realms, a shattering war cry pierces the stars in the sky. Here on earth, that counter-assault is announced, though, by the tiny, muffled cry of a newborn in his crib. Jesus? What? The Lord will save his people. Emmanuel? Who? How? I, I will go to them myself. I will fight for them. And I will war on their behalf. What? Because I love them. And so this is Christmas. The incarnation. God takes the form of you and I, leaves his throne in heaven, and cloaks himself in the most unlikely of disguises to steal into the enemy's camp. Takes on the frailties of the flesh to come and rescue each man and woman who will kneel and worship his only son, born in that cold Bethlehem stable. The raid, as you know it, uh, was a success. <laughs> in fact, there was a victory party in the skies above the nativity that night, and this one was visible. Luke writes that suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. A great company. That's not like, hey, let's have some company over in the living room. Company. It's a military term, actually, in the Bible. It's a platoon of angels. The heavenly host. The Greek word for host is stratia, or armies. In other words, the armies of heaven array themselves above the stable. They're bloodied, but they're unbowed. And this company of angels breaks out in a victory song as this infant emerges. Again, look at the contrast scripture highlights. Glory to God in the highest, in the heavens. And on earth, there will now be peace to those men who know his son. In the person of Jesus, we see God in the flesh. 
And in the risk of sending his son, Jesus, to die for us, we see everything we need to know about our Heavenly Father. He loves us. He loves you beyond human explanation. In our broke-down, rebellious state, he doesn't care how far we've run from him or what kind of mess we've made of, of our lives. You are his child. And in sending Jesus on that first Christmas, he has come to rescue you and reclaim you back into the safety of his family. He wants it that bad. He is a brave warrior, the essence of courage, risking everything. Giving up the comfort and glory of his heavenly throne to descend to our violent and broken world and fight for us against the enemy who seeks to bind and destroy us. Yeah, this this battle is too much for you and I. And that's why we celebrate the arrival of Emmanuel, or God with us. Only the power and strength of God himself can defeat our enemy and win our freedom. But it would cost him, as you know. You imagine on that night in the nativity, Mary, ever see a new mom? (laughs) Looking into her newborn's face, wrinkled, still kind of red, smashed together. One of the coolest things you do with a baby is you look into the, 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 the I remember my first uh, child, my daughter, looking at him just marveling, being stunned, awestruck. I had no words when I saw her tiny little hand. And no words is quite a miracle in itself for me. <laughs> Imagine Mary gazing at those tiny palms like any new parent does, the little t- fingers, the little nails, and just weeping for joy at her precious gift while in heaven, Jesus' father is also weeping in grief over the wounds he knows his little son will endure to set the captives free. See, he looks at his son's tiny hands and thinks of the nails that will pierce them someday. See, this baby is born to die. It's a suicide mission of sorts, I guess. It'll actually only take 33 years for all of eternity to be tipped on its head once again. You imagine Mary watching the little boy grow up, playing in the streets, working in his father's shop, learning in the temple. Oh, Joseph, look how he's growing. And his heavenly father also watching and counting his son's every steps from the cradle to the cross that he would hang on one day. See, Christmas, above all other things, the incarnation, the birth of God's own son is about one thing. Love beyond all means. That is the energizing force behind this cosmic Christmas scene. Love of a father for not just his only son, but for all of his children, for you and for me. You are the face that launched a thousand ships. You think of that. This holiday is D-Day. The day the forces of heaven were mobilized to win your freedom. That God would not leave you alone, would not leave you behind because he loves you too much. And so he sends Jesus to take the hit for us. To serve as a sacrifice in our place so that our sins might be paid for. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 explains in this baby, this child, God made him who had no sin to be what? Sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That tiny infant Jesus was given life so that his blood might be spilled for you. That's the gift of Christmas. The life of God's son for yours, even up freely offered. (laughs) 
Yes, the dragon would momentarily get his way 33 years after that miraculous birth when Christ was nailed to the cross of Calvary. But Jesus' death was part of the rescue plan as well. And when he died, he took sin and death and destruction and suffering and pain down with him forever. And when he bore the consequences of our sins, our freedom was secured. As he was laid low in the grave, we were lifted from the pit of despair. And on the other side of his death, 33 years and three days later, another cause for angelic celebration. Easter, but that's another holiday. This morning, we celebrate Christmas. And while we might sing songs that emphasize the stillness and peace of that evening so long ago, while you might encounter pictures and images that are calm and bucolic and bright, don't lose sight of the fierce battle. The blood that was shed, the heart that was pierced to bring Jesus to this world. When you encounter a nativity scene, maybe today, with plastic camels and a baby with his hands out, consider all that is unseen in the skies above it. That gift was for you. This is our God of love. Savior of our souls. Relentless lover of his children. He will not rest until he has you back in his fold. And he makes a way through his son, Jesus Christ. A cosmic Christmas. Imagine if God will fight such a battle as the one described in Revelation 12 to save you. He must really think you're worth the effort. You were in his eye as he looked into the face of his infant boy squirming in the manger. And because you are his child too, he will do whatever it takes to have you back in his family today and for eternity. Let's pray and thank God for all that Christ's coming means to us. Heavenly Father, again, we confess to you our hearts slumber. We snooze, Lord, to the significance at times and believe it is just um, about a holiday or a million other things that miss the real reason for a pause in everything, a celebration. It's a victory day, Lord. You coming to reclaim your people, coming to break your kingdom into this world, and now we align our hearts with yours. We pray for your kingdom to come. We thank you for Jesus. We worship and kneel in our hearts and adore him, and we marvel at you. We thank you, God, that you are bigger and greater than anything we could imagine or dream. We thank you for your son. We look forward to his return. In Jesus' name, amen.